0: The point is, we are out there investigating, this is what we found, you can believe whatever you want, I don't know what it's all about, I'm trying to find out myself, but I'm not going to put it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen. I believe that many of the cases were legitimate, the witnesses were legitimate, many of those people had for years problems dealing with some of the events that they, they were part of. He said he saw these dark figures running around the distance, but as he got closer, there were four or five hairy people with eyes like coals of fire, and he began to shoot randomly at them and ran into the house. And at the same time, over the trees in the woods, there's this large object, he said, like a big crystal thorn with different colored lights hovering over there at the same time. And the question I keep asking myself is, what is going on?
1: And now, ladies and gentlemen, banal of america audio with your
0: host tim banal
1: what is going on my friends this is tim banal of Benal of with another edition of boa audio season six before we dive into this week's installment of the program once again i want to give big big thanks to our good buddy ian for contributing the theme music for this week's installment of the program You'll be hearing Ian's song on the program here over the next few weeks and months, but we're also going to try and sprinkle in some other tunes by various other very talented members of the BOA Audio listening audience. So do not fret if you're one of those folks out there who is a musician and wants to contribute to the program. Just shoot me a line at boaaudio at hotmail.com, and we'll be sure to give your stuff a listen. Now that we've taken care of that, let's get down to business on this week's edition of the program. And it is truly a wild installment of BOA Audio, as we welcome veteran UFO and paranormal researcher Stan Gordon for an in-depth discussion on his new book, Silent Invasion, which details the UFO Bigfoot wave that swept across Pennsylvania in 1973 and 74. If you have not heard of this story, trust me, my friends, it is mind-blowing stuff. In 1973, there was this wave of UFO sightings in Pennsylvania, and all of a sudden come a whole bunch of Bigfoot sightings, and I'm not talking about one or two, we're talking about dozens and dozens of Bigfoot sightings in the summer of 1973. And, as if things could not get any more strange, there were cases where UFOs and Bigfoot were seen in the same place. So, truly, truly strange stuff that went on in Pennsylvania in 1973 and 74. And what makes Stan Gordon's work quite remarkable is that Silent Invasion is not just an examination of this 73-74 UFO Bigfoot wave. It is a recounting of the cases because he was on the ground During the wave, he was really the primary investigator of this amazing turn of events. Some of the avenues we'll explore here in the conversation include the bizarre nature of these Bigfoot reports, the media frenzy that surrounded the wave, Stan's work during that time with local authorities and how that got him access to truly fresh and odd cases, We'll also learn about mysterious signs of clandestine government interest in the UFO Bigfoot wave as it unfolded. And Stan will recount some of the most mind-blowing cases that he investigated as this was all going on. In addition to all that, we're going to try and get meta on this. Because during the 73-74 wave, Stan Gordon was only 24 or 25 years old at the time and seeing as it is over 30 years since that big event, we're going to get his perspective on the world of ufology, how it has evolved and changed in the five decades that he's been involved in the field. Plus, we'll explore what folks in the UFO community and cryptozoological community have to say about that 73-74 UFO Bigfoot wave. We've spent time here on Season 6 examining the Bigfoot mystery, and, as I said with Gian Casar, I thought I knew one thing about Bigfoot, but his work just had me flummoxed and wondering what this creature was all about. And I have a feeling that many of you are going to feel the same way after you hear this conversation with Stan Gordon. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stan Gordon, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Since 1965, Stan Gordon has been conducting on-scene investigations of mysterious encounters in Pennsylvania. He has been involved with the examination of thousands of UFO and other strange reports from across the Keystone State. During the late 1960s, Stan acted as a telephone report sighting coordinator for the UFO Research Institute of Pittsburgh and has been internationally recognized as an authority on the subject of the UFO and Bigfoot phenomena. He gained prominence from his first-hand investigation into the well-remembered 1973-74 UFO Bigfoot series of sightings and encounters, which occurred in Pennsylvania. He founded the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group in 1970, which expanded to the Pennsylvania Center for UFO Research in 1975. In addition to all that, Stan Gordon served as the Pennsylvania State Director for the Mutual UFO Network for many years, and was the first recipient, in 1978, of the annual MUFON Meritorious Achievement and a UFO Investigation Award. He also continues to investigate information concerning the controversial UFO crash retrieval case, which occurred on December 9, 1965, near Kecksburg in Pennsylvania, and has been the primary investigator of the event for many years. He's the author of Silent Invasion, as noted, that's the book we're going to be discussing here on the program this week, as well as Really Mysterious Pennsylvania. And his website is www.stangordon.info. Pretty simple, all one word, stangordon.info. That's a website that is rich with information and details about Stan Gordon's 50-plus years investigating UFOs and the paranormal. Be sure to check it out. And with all that said, I'm sure you are chomping at the bit to hear this edition of the program. So let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 8, 2011. Stan Gordon talking about Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Wave of 1973 and 74 on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. And as we've sort of been exploring the periphery of the paranormal here this season, I'm very excited about where we're going to be journeying to today on the program. Our guest has been a stalwart in the world of ufology for over 50 years and this is something that I hadn't realized really until I read the book and found out more about his background and that to me was personally just amazing and stunning and kudos to him for for lasting this long in this crazy field and and he's seen a lot of stuff so I'm looking forward to talking to him about that talking about Stan Gordon serious player in Pennsylvania UFO research and just paranormal research in Pennsylvania. He's been really walking the back roads and main streets of Pennsylvania trying to track down paranormal mysteries for, as I said, over 50 years. So he's seen a lot of stuff. And he's got a new book out, which is some mind-blowing stuff that I think everybody out there should get their hands on. It is called Silent Invasion, the Pennsylvania UFO Bigfoot Casebook. And it details this just mind-blowing wave of UFO and Bigfoot sightings that were happening in, I guess you could say, southwestern Pennsylvania primarily in 1973-1974. And it is just rigorously detailed, covers an amazing array of cases, and we'll find out exactly how many in a few moments. And as I said, it'll blow your mind, folks, because I just had heard about the the Bigfoot-UFO kind of connection, but never had heard about what happened in Pennsylvania in the early 1970s until I read this book. So kudos to him. Stan Gordon, I've, I've talked long enough here. People want to hear from you. So welcome to BOA Audio. It's a long time coming. We should have had you on much sooner, and hopefully this is the first of many future appearances. Welcome to the show, sir.
0: Thank you very much for having me
1: on today. Now, again, i got to put over this book just thought-provoking stuff because, like I said, nobody really ever wants to touch on the UFO-Bigfoot connection, and, and it sounds like this thing may have, with the exception of your work, and maybe some other people sort of side mentioning it. This thing's sort of fallen through the cracks in a big way. The seventy three seventy four wave that happened down there in Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, it was an amazing time to live through. And uh, you know, I, I've had many people who were around at that time, and they still talk to me about it. And uh, I was encouraged by a lot of these people to to bring this book out. But one of the main reasons I did it was because I felt that this was such an important part of of history, mm-hmm. both for cryptozoology and for UFOs and no doubt some of the strangest events in history were recorded during that time and are very well documented because we were on the scene within minutes hours of many of these cases after they occurred. And uh, I just felt that this was something that really needed to come forward in the hope that other researchers or other witnesses or people who had information on similar events might come forward so we have more information to look at these reports because, as you know, those in the UFO field – don't like to connect UFOs with Bigfoot reports. And those who are dealing with Bigfoot, who are, of course, the idea these things are zoological in nature, which is what my initial information and and initial data suggested. And, and again, I keep an open mind to all aspects of it. But uh, those in the zoological field don't want to connect UFOs with what they're finding. But I, I think I'm also finding that in more recent years, more and more, people in both fields are starting to ask more questions about the phenomenon in general. And um, I'm hopeful that more people might come forward now with this information coming out.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you there. It does seem like there's been sort of a changing of perspective in recent years where you know, it feels like a lot of these fields have sort of reached the saturation point, and they're sort of starting to look in other areas to to sort of maybe there's you know pieces of the puzzle in this other area that I haven't looked at yet. So so this book, again, you know, coming along at the right time for sure. And and you point out here too that it's of interest, and it should be noted to the folks here listening that it's you didn't just chronicle this 1973-74 uh, wave that happened down there, but you were on the scene investigating these cases. So you know, the book reads like that. It reads like someone who actually went to talk to these witnesses and really got the information from them. You're not just, you know, telling second-hand stories that you heard. You, you know, you were there, as you said, within minutes or hours after these sightings right. had occurred.
0: That's exactly right. And uh, I should probably give your listeners a little bit of an idea of some of the background and how we got involved in this type of event and how we were set up to do this. And actually, my interest in this began when I was 10 years old and my birthday is in the Halloween season, so my parents would give me a, a new AM radio on my 10th birthday. And I was tuning around a radio dial that night because of strange, unusual happenings. They were talking about flying saucers and ghosts and strange creatures. And I was 10, but I was really interested in science. I was very curious. And I was wondering if these people are all crazy or they're making these stories up, or is there something to it? So I began to make frequent trips to our local library. And I began to watch the newspapers and I cut articles out and make scrapbooks. And if I saw an article in the local paper that somebody had seen something strange, I called them on the phone and talked to them about it personally and began to keep records of it. And uh so my interest continued, and in 1969, I decided to set up a hotline. Uh, and that that's several years after the Kecksburg incident. I was 16 when the Kexburg incident happened in 1965. So it was that case that led me out in the field to do firsthand investigation. And in 69, I decided to set up a hotline. And I began to make contact with the local police and the news media. I told them what I was doing. And as you know, back then there was quite a bit of ridicule on these subjects. But I tried to handle it very seriously, open-mindedly. And uh, as word got around about my hotline, my phone was just being inundated with calls. And calls were coming in day and night, and it was much more than I could handle on my own. So I decided that I wanted to set up a, a volunteer group of research people, uh, scientists, engineers, technicians, uh, people who had experience in investigation to respond to these cases and hopefully to get there while the phenomenon was ongoing. And that was my goal. So in 1970, I founded the first group that was called the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. And uh, we had a number of... Uh, good volunteers involved in it. We all did this around our regular jobs. With my electronics background, I set up a, a pretty uh, involved uh, communication center in my home. And I set up and designed a two-way radio system so we could radio dispatch some of the investigators out to the scene of these events. And so by the time 1973 came around, our group was already per- very active. We had been investigating a lot of reports. The group was coming, becoming well-known across the state of Pennsylvania. And as this outbreak began, first with UFO sightings, and those who were around will recall that it was in the fall of 1973 that the United States experienced this major wave of UFO activity. But it actually started here January and began January 1st, actually, and continued all year long. And we had hundreds of UFO cases we looked into, and many, of course, uh, were explainable, but there were many significant, very detailed cases which are mentioned in Silent Invasion. Mm-hmm. It was that series of events that began in the summer of 73 with this massive outbreak of Bigfoot activity. That was just an amazing time to live through. And, uh, you know, we could talk in more detail about that, of course, as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You beat me to the punch on the bio background. I appreciate that, actually, because you saved me from being too standardized here <laughs> at the beginning of the show. Uh, to, just to go back to the bio background for you, I think it bears repeating here for folks, you you know, you started up this UFO hotline in 1969, you're 20 years old. You started the group uh, the next year, you're 21. This whole thing happens, you know, in 73, 74, and, you know, you're about 24, 25 years old. I mean, kudos to you. Over the years here on this program, we've pushed for more young people to get involved in ufology and the paranormal. And, I mean, you were out there doing it back in the late 60s, and it just amazed me, too. I had to keep sort of keeping that in the front of my mind as I'm reading the book here, I can imagine you sort of this young guy out there talking to these people and, and really getting to the bottom of these cases.
0: And it was difficult in some cases because, you know, here's myself talking to in some cases, police officers, uh, pilots, uh, very responsible older individuals. And here I am, a young guy, talking about some of the strangest things that made the strangest event of their life. Mm-hmm. But people were glad to have somebody who would listen to them to share their experience. They knew I was going to keep their names uh confidential if that's what they requested, which is something that still goes on today. Many people ask not to be identified because of the ridicule factor, even though it's not nearly as bad as it was back in those early days. But uh, anyhow, it, you know, we got a lot of experience because a lot of the research people we were dealing with uh, in our groups at the time, and uh, it again, it was just an amazing time to live through and to get out there and, and witness firsthand the emotion of the witnesses to see the, the evidence, and, and I'd say besides the fact of not just the footprints and other evidence we found at the scene in certain cases, but what was so dramatic was the animal reactions. People can be fooled, but animals cannot. And that's something that even some of the in- police officers told us who investigated some cases, how, how strange the animals were responding. There's no way that could be fabricated. And that was probably the best evidence that I saw at the time.
1: Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is the kind of first hand perspective that you that you only get really from going on to the scene and, and, and picking up these little details that perhaps would get lost on somebody else. So, like I said, the book's invaluable really in that regard, and I highly recommend it to people. I, I have some notes here sort of as I went through the book looking at all these different cases. I, I, you may know, I guess, or I hope you do. How many cases would you say are, are profiled in the book altogether?
0: Oh, boy. You know, I can't even tell you, There are many, many dozens <laughs> of Bigfoot cases, and, and Multitudes of uFO cases and uh, and i and I know there was other cases we didn 't even include in the book because a lot of it was repetitious and a lot of and some things were you know misidentified there were some hoaxes, and we mentioned some of those in the book, but i didn 't want to take up extra pages with yeah. a lot of the things that 's just over and over again mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah, but there 's just tons i mean uh, just as a point here uh, we 'll eventually get to sort of the august Bigfoot wave, but just to make a point, I actually stopped and counted from to from just August 15th to the 20th there were 15 Bigfoot or creature sightings so i mean just take take that into account folks i mean that's <laughs> 15 yeah. sightings over the course of 5 days that's like 3 a day you know and and, and just imagine that happening Nowadays, people will be going crazy.
0: Right, and in some areas, that's exactly what was began to happen because certain areas, we'll be talking a lot about the Chestnut Ridge area. The Chestnut Ridge is a mountain range that runs from Preston County, West Virginia, through Westmore and Fenton, Indiana County, and Southwest Pennsylvania. And that area in western PA along the ridge is a continuous year-after-year active area for strange events, UFO sightings, Bigfoot activity, a lot of other phenomena that goes on and why there's so much activity, especially Bigfoot activity, especially outside of La Trobe, around Derry Township, along that part of the ridge, even in recent years. And, uh but back at that time, there was a lot of activity going on out there. And some of these cases, you know, as you saw in the book, we could be in one incident, and at the same time, about the same time at a distance, we had another report, so you knew you were dealing with more than one creature, and in fact, there were some cases where we had multiple creatures involved
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah it's it's bizarre it's just really that's that's what struck me It was like this doesn't seem to make any sense that there was this like You kind of laid out what happened here as far as as this flap, as we're going to dig deeper into it. It seems like it started with UFOs, then all of a sudden Bigfoots just started appearing, you know, towards the summer and into the fall, and then, you know, it seemed like there was sort of a cross-section of UFO sightings and Bigfoot sightings, most of the time not together, but then, you know, you're seeing Bigfoot and UFO at the same time. So, you know, and then it seems like the wave kind of petered out, slowly over 74, and then then the the waves sort of dissipated, if you will. Obviously, these sort of sightings still happen from time to time, but the explosion of what went on that year or or that two years, uh, you know, hasn't really been repeated, right?
0: Right. Well, there was nothing like that ever, as far as I know, before or since that episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But as the reports dwindled, of course, in 74, The sighting has continued, and as far as I can recall, as of right now, there have been Bigfoot sightings reported in Pennsylvania every year since that time, but nothing in the numbers like we saw during that outbreak.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's sort of like the wave to bring people up to speed, and then we're going to dig into some of these various incidents that happened and sort of the story of what was going on during all this time because there's a lot of sort of uh, threads that you can see and discern As you, as you read through the cases and the chronology of it, which I found really sort of interesting, it just kind of plays a little bit like a movie or it plays sort of like, you know, I, I imagine, you know, I'm just getting these dispatches from the field, from you as I'm reading the book and it's like, what is this? This is getting crazier and crazier.
0: Yeah, and I, I tried to do it from a personal perspective of what I was doing, what I was seeing, what I was feeling, what I was experiencing at the time. And I was trying to get that across to the reader because, it, again, it was such an amazing time to live through. And as I said many times in the past, if I had not been involved in this, nobody could ever convince me it was real. It was like living a real science fiction movie.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It definitely it feels that way as, as you're going along in the book. Now I did notice one one thing that stood out for me here, because this was something I had never really heard before with UFO sightings. I'm sort of just getting into some some, somewhat specific notes. I hope they're not too specific. One of them here was that there were two sightings in in mid-March of 73 where the witnesses saw UFO and reported a strange smell associated with it, which was something that I'd never really heard before. Is this something that you've come across?
0: It's not that common, but an occasion – uh, there have been some reports of odors, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes more y but sometimes again something like the the rotten egg, sulfur-like smell.
1: Okay, so similar to the Bigfoot smell, cause I, like, Yeah, it was
0: very, very rarely reported.
1: Interesting, but sometimes with the UFOs, but rarely, very rarely. Yeah. There's something about that smell, yeah, because as I was reading the book and I hear these guys reporting that, I'm like, oh, here come the Bigfoot. sort of makes you wonder what if there's some correlation there yeah. that we haven't now, figured again, out yet. As
0: I stress in the book, you know, in many of the Bigfoot reports, you do have that very strong, uncomfortable odor that people have described. Some people actually said they felt sick afterwards, smelling the strong odor, which many described as like rotten egg, sulfur, rotten meat, something that's been dead for a long period of time. And, uh, but it's not reported in all of the cases.
1: That's the, that's the strange thing about, about the whole thing. And, and you kind of bring it into perspective too with the UFOs. Cause it's like, no, I'm sure there's a lot of sort of like standardized versions of UFO sightings, but no UFO sighting itself seems to be the same as any other one. And it's kind of that case too with, with these Bigfoot sightings, as you're reading the book, it's like this one's just a little bit different from the last one. And this time the Bigfoot did something a little bit different That, you know, you haven't seen in any of the cases. It's very, you know, I I really like that a lot because there was so many details in the book that that really stood out like that.
0: Well, we did try to make it very detailed as we could. And uh, as I said, there's many unanswered questions. I don't have the answers of what took place. I'm relating what we found. Mm -hmm. I believe that many of the cases were legitimate. The witnesses were legitimate. Many of those people had for years problems dealing with some of the events that they they were part of. A lot of people couldn't accept what they actually saw because, you know, the high percentage of witnesses, even today, not just from 73 74, but so many of the really detailed UFO Bigfoot observers are people who never would have believed unless they had their own experience. And many of these people used to laugh about it. That
1: seems to always be the case. It's the guys like me who are – into the subject, never get to see anything.
0: That's <laughs> well. I don't know if you caught it in the book, but you know, I've been—it'll be 52 years I've been doing this now, uh, coming up in October. And in all the years I've been doing this, I have never personally seen a UFO or Bigfoot. I've seen a lot of evidence. I've interviewed thousands of people. I'm convinced from the pattern, the evidence we've seen that something's going on, but I never had my own personal experience.
1: That always seems to be the case. It's strange like that. Now what I noticed too as a recurring theme here in the book uh, with regards to these Bigfoot sightings, as far as evidence goes, the tracks were seen predominantly three-toed, which is, I I think, I feel, at least, is fairly unique to the Bigfoot. You know, how prevalent are these these three-toed tracks in the annals of Bigfootery, if you will?
0: Okay, well actually, during the 70s, there were many reports around the country of three-toed footprints, and in fact, In many parts of the country where you have the typical five-toed tracks, like in the Pacific Northwest, there are reports of three-toed, even four-toed tracks showing up, which adds to the mystery. But while it was very common to have a lot of these three-toed tracks showing up, there were also reports of five-toed tracks, even in the 70s. And uh, we still get reports of mainly we get more, in the last few years we've had more, I'd say, of five-toed footprints showing up. but there's a lot of mystery and phenomena to what we were finding and what we're still finding today and many questions that I have myself about the Bigfoot phenomena. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about some of this as we get further into the book and more about the phenomena itself. But uh, just for example, just several weeks ago, in the snow, they out in this area, they found a, a long series of very unusual footprints, large, bipedal, but completely different than your normal Bigfoot tracks. But there was no indication they were fabricated. So there's just a lot of things that show up that you know we just don't have the answers for. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely, yeah, yeah. And as you get deeper into the book, as we'll probably, as I'm sure we're going to get into, the easy answer of this is just some mysterious cryptid animal that we haven't found yet. You know, that gets very murky as these as these incidents start to uh, pile up.
0: Well, they did for me because. You know, I, again, I, I started out in the field in the late 60s, and I was, when I was in high school, uh, graduated, uh, what was it, 67, and I remember some of the kids out there would be coming to me and tell me their stories, and their family members would tell me stories because they knew of my interest already. And I remember some of the kids tell me how they used to go parking, uh, with their dates out in this, uh, one particular area uh which now has a long history of Bigfoot encounters. But back then, the kids would talk about going out to this uh, very rural area, parking with their dates and having what they said was a gorilla coming out of the woods and throwing rocks at their car. And that's an area now that's had a lot of Bigfoot activity for many, many years. And uh, so, you know, as, from the early days, I started hearing these stories of alleged Bigfoot cases. And one of the earliest reports I had was uh, down along what they call Lober, down towards West Newton, along the uh, creeks down there, where apparently a number of people had encountered a large, uh, white, hairy creature. And the white ones are not that common, but as you see in the book, we do have some reports of those as well. But as I got into these early reports, I mean, my opinion was that we're dealing with some type of unknown primate, some type of unknown zoological specimen. And that's how, for years and years, you know, we went into the field looking for evidence and thinking that's where it was going to lead us until, as you see what happened, as some very strange events began to unfold during that wave of 1973.
1: Yeah, I mean, I found myself completely flummoxed by the end of the book, uh, with regards to just what this Bigfoot creature is, because you touched on something that I had completely forgotten about, and that was just that the, the descriptions of this thing ran the gamut of, of sort of the, uh, the, the shades of the hair, too. So, we're, I mean, if this is an unknown species, we're talking about quite a few different. Creatures out there, white ones, tan ones, gray ones, brown ones. It's like this is a lot. Something's going on.
0: And you different footprints. And yeah. you know, something I bring up, and I was just talking another research a little bit ago about this. And you know, when you go to some of the conferences I speak at, I, I have quite often, I bring some of the castings I had from over the years from Pennsylvania, of different castings from different events. And while some of them have very great similarity, some of them are extremely different. And yet, there's no indication of those cases them being fabricated. I mean, the, the witnesses appear to be legitimate. They had no reason to make up the story. They weren't looking for any publicity. The evidence was pretty clean at the, at the scene. Here, you've got a whole series of, of footprints that are completely different than some of the what we call the normal Bigfoot tracks, even the three-toed or the five-toed tracks. So I the question I keep asking myself is what is going on if these are legitimate tracks what is going on How, you know it, it's difficult enough to believe it. we're dealing with one type of unknown specimen but the fact that there could be multiple types of things out there it just doesn't seem likely unless there's something we just don't understand that uh, could be part of this phenomena
1: yeah exactly there's something missing here we haven't quite figured out yet we're having quite you know stumbled upon yet maybe we won't even be able to who knows but it's yeah. it's as i said it's completely mind-boggling um now during this whole wave i us sort of set the the mood a little bit too as far as like what people might have been going through what was there quite a uh, it seemed like there was quite a media blitz if you will or quite quite you know it sounded like they were really on top of this with regards to how prevalent these ufo and Bigfoot sightings were was,
0: yeah it was getting uh as reports were unfolding and the reports were circulating around the area, and people were getting more and more concerned, uh, the media in general, and especially in the areas like around Latrobe, we had the Latrobe Bulletin, uh, some of the other small town papers that were around at the time and are no longer in existence today. They were covering this story very, very well, and it was front page for days of some of the, and this went on for weeks. And it got to the point where it got bigger and bigger. The bigger papers started to pick it up. It started to make national news. It hit the national newswire. And we, our group, was just being inundated. I mean, I was luckily in a position, I was managing a small little electronics firm here in town at the time, and I was able to take some vacation time off, and I spent just several weeks just working on this full-time around the clock. And... If you can visualize it, if you go to my website, uh, stangordon.info, you can see a part of some of my communications center, my radio room. Well, if you can visualize back in those days, that's a little more modern today, but we had a, I had a lot of equipment here. And we had two phone lines here. The communications center was set up in my home. During this wave, it was being manned 24 hours a day with, with our people from our research group the phones and the radios, and we had teams out there day and night responding to these events. I mean, it was unbelievable. I mean, I remember in one week, the phone lines went out of order twice, and the phone companies they'd never seen like it before. There were so many calls coming in, the phone lines back then couldn't handle all the calls coming in at the time. And uh, again, we'd be responding to these events uh, 24 hours a day, and uh, it, it uh, once again, it was just an amazing time to live through. It sounds just just insane
1: and and the point too that uh you, you touched on this earlier, and it, you can read it you know throughout the book is that you know you worked really closely with the local and state police during this whole thing. I mean you were almost sort of like their their rapid response x files team of sorts uh, you sound like, it sounded like at one point you point out that that you would get a call like from the nine one one dispatcher that you had to call nine one one to find out. You know, that there was a pretty hot case going on right now that you should go and check out. So well, Actually I mean, they
0: had actually what they were doing for a period of time when this outbreak was really at its peak, they were doing a, a special code signal over the uh over the fire and civil events dispatch radio system to me, which I had a radio monitor in my car. And that would notify me to call in right away that something had occurred. Yeah, code red, and, right? Yeah. And uh it. I mean, there were times when we would be out on the scene and we'd uh, hook up with either the local police or the state police at some of the investigations, and sometimes they responded to uh, certain events. Uh, we, But quite often, they were referring the calls to the callers to contact us to investigate, or they would refer the report over that they had received a report on this, and we would follow up on it.
1: Right, right, and it sort of flies in the face of the general idea that maybe – that, that, that you were out there sort of on your own doing this or that you were, you know, dissuaded by the, the police not to get involved or, you know. It, it, I mean, they really embraced you and, and your work and your team there to to really sort of get to the bottom of this and, and take some of the load off of them, it seems.
0: Well, you know, by the time that this happened, we had started the group in 1970. By 73, the group had taken on uh, a level of, uh, I guess, responsibility, and they realized that we were out there trying to scientifically work on cases just in general, and we weren't out there to try to prove anything. We weren't out to try to prove that UFOs or extraterrestrial or Bigfoot was whatever it was. We were out there gathering evidence to try to determine what these things were, and as we found then, as we find today, and I may have mentioned this earlier, you know, when you properly investigate these reports, many phenomena appear to be strange and unusual initially, but when you investigate them, the high percentage of determined to be either natural or man-made in origin. There were Bigfoot misidentifications. I mean, cases of, you know, big dogs, a bear, you know, different things along that line. Lots of things were misidentifications for UFO sightings, and they still are today. But there was many really well-documented cases at the time you could not easily dismiss, and uh, I think the fact was that our group was there. We were pretty much trained to handle these reports. We were out there investigating the reports, and the police department doesn't have time to follow up on everything.
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it's also it's, it's it's unique in a way, I think, and something I wish we kind of had more of nowadays, sort of these localized groups that, that were really uh, – you know, seen as responsible by the by the uh police and, and the authorities like that. You know what I mean? It seems like nowadays they may get more dismissed by the authorities. So I wish we had more uh groups like that nowadays. But, you know, times have changed. Oh,
0: yes. <laughs> that, they, that they have. Before
1: I get into some of the other stuff, let's talk a little bit more about sort of uh, when the the Bigfoot wave exploded. What were you thinking, like, when this went on? Because it sounded like you guys, I mean, the name of your group was the, uh, the WC UFO SG. So right. were you guys, like, taken aback that all of a sudden you were in the Bigfoot business?
0: Well, of course, it was a Westmoreland County UFO study group. And mm-hmm. if, while we were dealing mainly with UFO reports, we would get calls on various types of other phenomena as well and uh but we were mainly dealing with our local county even though we would get reports into the Pittsburgh area which is like 30 miles away and other areas around there and but as this wave really uh began to expand into, across the state in 73 the group was getting well known across the state and uh in fact in 1975 because we were dealing mainly statewide we changed the name of the group to the Pennsylvania Center for UFO Research and then I found another group in 1981, which served as a statewide clearinghouse phenomena. That was the Pennsylvania Association for the Study of the Unexplained. But since 1993, I've been uh, working on my own as an independent researcher.
1: But I guess just to throw back to that, so to to take people, I guess, into the into the into the moment, what were you thinking when all of a sudden, like, these these Bigfoot sightings just started piling up? I mean, I'm sure before that you'd heard the stories, but but now it's like, I mean, you had to have seen, you know, that that something very strange is going on right now. Like, what were you thinking when all that went down?
0: Well, you know, again, prior to that, we had been aware of a history of Bigfoot case in Pennsylvania, the reports from the Native Americans and even newspaper accounts going back to the 1800s. But And I heard in the 60s, of of reported some sightings around the area. Actually, 72, and I go over some of those cases in, in the book as well, there were some interesting events involving uh, UFO cases and then a, a short outbreak of incidents involving cases, for example, people reporting what they said was a gorilla walking across a highway near Latrobe, And there was one other event where people reporting strange lights uh, around the cemetery in a wooded area. Then people reporting this big hairy hulk type thing chasing dogs and those were interesting the year before but how this all began in, in 73 of course there was all the ufo activities going on but it was um, actually on august the 7th that uh, i got a call from a relative of a person who had an experience which actually occurred on july 31st in a rural area outside of greensburg i was out behind the old greengate mall area back then there was a lot of woods around there but today, things have uh, grown up quite a bit. But how the story unfolded was that uh, the night of July 31st, this fellow was shaving. He, he got up early for work, and he was shaving as like he normally did. And it was a warm night. And uh, he's in the bathroom, and he starts to smell this funny odor that he said it looks like rotten cucumber. And he turns around, and he looks at the window. And here in the window, in the bathroom window, here's these two huge glowing orange eyes. But the window's eight feet off the ground. And uh, he runs into the other room and calls some of the other relatives, and they run in. Of course, whatever was there was gone, but they could smell the odor. They had dogs outside, but the dogs weren't barking, which is odd because they generally bark at anybody who's around. And uh, apparently this guy had some uh, medical problems and taken by ambulance to the hospital the next day and was back from the hospital when I got the call. I went out there that day, that Sunday, August 7, to talk to the witness and some of the other people. And while I'm there, I learned that uh, a number of of boys, local boys, had a number of weeks before had taken a shortcut over to the mall. And, again, a lot of brush and woods around there at the time. And they heard this commotion. They thought it was a deer. So they got some rocks, started throwing some rocks in to scare the deer out. And instead of a deer, here comes this large, hairy, tall creature with long arms, uh, taking a long gait across the road and up behind the hill, up behind the home. So I was able to interview some of those boys that day. While we we're all there, I asked the people on the property, I said, Do You mind if I go up and look around? They said, Sure, you can go up. And some of the boys said, Can we go with you? And I said, Sure, come on. So we're up there walking around up on the uh, hill up there and looked around for quite a while, didn't see anything. The ground conditions were really, weren't were very good. And I'm just about to leave when I happened to look down, and there in front of me is the strangest footprint I'd ever seen. And all the boys were like, Wow, like, what is that? What made that? And it was very deep, very clearly defined. As you can see the picture in the book, mm-hmm. it was a three toed footprint, 13 inches long and eight inches wide. And uh, I got on the radio and I called for one of my assistants and they came out and we took photographs, measurements, and then made a uh, plaster Paris casting of the track. And while we're out there, we got a radio call to one of our investigators up on the Ohio line that morning had information concerning a A creature sighting of a tall, hairy creature looking in a window, and the police have found some strange footprints up there. So that was the beginning of this major wave of events that would begin to extend for weeks and months throughout a large part of southwestern Pennsylvania, but also some other areas down east and other parts of the state as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm recalling that part of the book now and, and how that did seem to kick off the the big wave there. And as I pointed out earlier to folks here, like 15 sightings from August 15th to the 20th. So I mean, this was a serious, a serious wave. Uh, I think at the end of the book you say that – I think you recorded 118 creature sightings over the course of 73 and the first two months of 74. So, you know, 14 months you had 118 sightings. I mean, that's just – stunning to me uh there had to be something going on beyond what we can even fathom right now you know we're gonna gonna get into the speculative realm at that point
0: yeah in fact it was just a coincidence that a couple days ago a fellow had emailed me and gave me a particular date that he was a child but he apparently wrote the date down and uh wanted to know if i knew anything about a ufo sighting that occurred during 73 and coincidentally it's in my book
1: (laughs) nice nice so they're still turning up
0: Oh yeah, there's people all the, there's all the time you get reports from people, not just current reports, but people from ten, twenty, thirty, forty years ago who saw things. And quite often, because of the filing system I have and the thousands of cases that I've recorded over the years, that I can look things up sometimes for them. And they're so surprised the fact that other people also are verified they are having the same sighting about the same time and date.
1: Now, to to sort of keep the the story alive, if you will, things to then start getting really weird. And some of the even weirder stuff sort of stood out to me. And one one thing that I wanted to talk about is that this recurring sort of uh, you can kind of vaguely see the, the shadowy hand of, of of the government looking at this whole thing over the course of the book through various incidents. And you know they happen here and there. And as you put them all together, you start to get a picture of like something that's going on here. There's mail being intercepted, uh, mysterious investigators either impersonating your group or just going there and and going to talk to witnesses and and pretending they're investigators. Uh, You got a call from someone in the government with questions about about the whole thing, and then this mysterious bullhorn voice. So a lot of weird stuff going on beyond just the sightings that suggests that there was interest from higher-ups, if you will.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, again, yeah, a lot of very strange things. And again, While we dealt mainly with Bigfoot cases and UFO events, then you had a lot of these things that you just brought up, and then you had some other even stranger creatures being reported from certain areas and other strange entities being reported. So there was a lot going on, but most of it was focusing on the Bigfoot and UFO activity. But as I mentioned in the book, other strange things were also taking place. And, uh, yeah, as it began to unfold, and, again, you know, I'm getting into this investigation open-mindedly. Initially, the report's coming in. We're suggesting more and more that we're dealing with some type of unknown primate Mm -hmm. until some other calls begin to come forth from various – and, again, these weren't people who were into UFOs or Bigfoot. Most of these calls came in from the general public, sometimes first to the police or the media and then to us, people who were not looking for any publicity but quite often were very, very scared and they just wanted to have some answers and want to know what was going on. And some of those cases began to present information that began to make us wonder what exactly are we dealing with here. Um, as I'm, some of the things I mentioned, for example, was we'd be out in the field investigating, and we find a series of footprints would just suddenly stop and vanish. Yeah. When the ground conditions were conducive for more footprints, and where did they go? Or they would just start out of nowhere and continue on and just vanish. Uh, there was one particular case, uh, one of the, probably one of the, the best cases I recall. And this guy, uh, his name was Chester. Chester is now deceased. And Chester was a great guy. He was a retired coal miner. And we became quite good friends after this happened. Chester was a, a very big, bigfoot skeptic. And he and his wife, uh, and some neighbors were on the porch the night before his encounter sitting there yelling out loud and making fun of Bigfoot. Because I've been in the newspapers, they were joking about it, and he said, come on, Bigfoot, come on, out. I don't want to see you. Well, little did he know that a few hours later he would. And uh, that's one of the stories mentioned in the book. It happened outside of Lake Trove in a little town called Whitney, Pennsylvania. Chester lived in a uh, trailer out there in a uh, mobile home, and early morning hours there, this big bang against the trailer woke him up. And he figured, well, he had a little separate uh, garage out there with a nice antique car, and he figured somebody was gonna b- was breaking in t- for the car. Yeah. They kept the lights out, and they looked out the window to see this huge creature towering over, right well, only a few feet away, right next to the trailer, towering over the top of it. And he got a really good look at it, and he woke his wife, and she went over and looked, and she was very, very upset. And uh, poor poor fellow, he had emphysema from being a coal miner. He could barely talk. Didn't want to turn the light on, afraid it might scare it and cause it to do whatever. And uh, he he banged into the wall on the way over, which may have what scared it away. But he got on the phone and called the operator uh, for an emergency to call the state police, and he got a hold of them. And he could barely talk to him. It wasn't long after that. Uh, I believe it was three troop cars and six troopers went to the scene. And one of the officers called me from the scene that morning. It was early morning, around 4:30 in the morning and we got out there as soon as we could uh, make it available with the witnesses. But Chester, again, get a very, very detailed account. He had just cut the grass like a short time before that evening, and there was this very large trail of footprints going across the grass. But at one point, they suddenly stopped. And Chester said to me, he said, what is this thing? Could it fly? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's stunning to me the breadth and depth of these stories. Now, did you, in retrospect, did you ever find out anything more really about what what the government was trying to do or what they were interested in during this whole thing? I mean, were they just as mystified by what was going on as as you and I are today? You think, or did they, you know, have some other reasoning to be investigating
0: all this? Well, you know, I, I did mention that there were some representatives of one of the congressmen's office paid us a visit because of all the calls they were having from the public, mm-hmm. and they wanted to see what was going on. and They were very interested and very open minded. Uh, we kept in touch over a period of time. I didn't see any indication that, that I was aware of that anybody was following up on it. But, again, there was that other call that I had mentioned in the book of a person who claimed that they were working for the government, and they were very interested in our investigation, and I was provided uh, the name of a contact at a at a laboratory in Washington, D.C., in the event that uh, I would come up with any really good physical evidence, but unfortunately not enough to really do that. And, of course, uh, we never had any contact with him. Yeah, you make
1: the point in the book. It's like, hey, if I, if I came up with the really good physical evidence
0: to send to you, then the this,
1: this story would be over. Yeah. I'd that's have that's the right.
0: Bigfoot. Yeah. What could cause that? Clearly, aliens can cause that, as happened in Roswell, New Mexico, as happens in a television show I like called The Event. You have to face facts that aliens are all around us, and they have finally gotten to the NHL.
1: You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
0: Creepy. That's what this is. You pointed out that I spent a lot of time in Dallas, 20 years, working just a few blocks away from the grassy knoll, the book depository. So you're a conspiracist. And the conspiracy museum, which, oddly enough, has been closed down now. Conspiracy could be... Something odd is going on here. Clearly, it's aliens and Roswellian.
1: But there are—you do allude in the book too to some rumors that somebody had shot a Bigfoot and the government came and took it away. But that's, you know, a rumor. That was I guess.
0: one of the many rumors that were circulating around the area at the time. We tried to follow up, but we could never find where it originated from.
1: Very mysterious, because uh, yeah, like I alluded to also here, one of the one of the stories has some guy sees a Bigfoot. But right before he sees it, he hears someone on a bullhorn say something to the effect of uh you know if it doesn't come out of the woods, then we'll go in and shoot it and he could hear dogs and stuff, so it's like, yeah you wonder if there's some kind of some kind of government team out there looking for this thing you know under the nose of of all you guys,
0: <laughs> and who knows what was going on we were We were very busy on our own trying to follow up. We were hearing a lot of stories and rumors and things that were going on and but uh, who knows what could have been going on? It was over a very widespread area. Many things could have been taking place we weren't aware of.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very, uh, very strange. Uh, definitely for the folks who pick up the book, definitely something to keep an eye out for as you're reading along. You know, because as I said, these little pieces sort of start emerging, and you kind of see a mysterious little hand at work behind all this, and you're wondering what what they're what they're doing. So, very interesting. Right. Now you share in the in the book uh, the story of one of your one of your colleagues there, Barry Clark from your group. He was so spooked by the case that he investigated that he actually he left the paranormal field. He left the research community. I thought that was pretty interesting because yeah, uh, and
0: uh, there was some oddball thing. And, and Barry was a very experienced hunter and woodsman. I mean, he knew the outdoors and animals very very well. Guy doesn't fear anything. But there was two farms out in Derry Township. One in particular with these creatures. Seeing they keep coming back on a kind of irregular regular basis and various people including not just the people who lived on the farm others who were there at times would see it. and he would stake it out at times and some of our other teams would be staking in other areas and he himself never seeing the creature but he heard that horrific screaming sound of the creature one night and on that i would just say also on that farm One case I mentioned there where there had been a very detailed, very close Bigfoot sighting on the farm. And, uh, some of the other people soon after went out searching for it and they didn't find it, but instead they saw a UFO just a, a short time later. And there was recurring strange lights, strange objects being seen around the farm as well as the Bigfoot activity. And again, this wasn't something that just had happened before. It was just, you know, start going on. And, uh, and other areas reporting similar type of events as well, but Barry, uh, after seeing some of the things he did and hearing the sound, he just, uh, he decided to call it quits.
1: Yeah, too much, I guess, you know. <laughs>
0: Sometimes it gets too real, I guess.
1: That brings up sort of the idea that I had as I was reading the book. Did you guys do sort of try that sort of idea of a stakeout situation to try and get on a predictive level, I guess you could say, uh, following these creatures? Because some of these events seem to happen a lot, like at certain mobile home uh, parks and stuff like that.
0: Oh, yeah, well, many a times we we staked out certain areas. And uh, we had various type of audio equipment or whatever and amplifiers and whatever, but unfortunately, we never got to see anything. Uh, I will say that at least one incident, I felt I was very close to the creature. On one of those farms where we were getting recurring reports, the family had called us out that the creature, they believed had just been there. Uh, we got out to the farm a short time later and could see the animals very much upset and scared. And... In an area where they generally wouldn't normally be uh, eating or moving around, found three-toed footprints in the barnyard. And you know these creatures. There's a number of different sounds that they've been uh, reported to make, uh, anywhere from a woman in pain screaming to a baby crying, to a high-pitched bird whistle, to uh, a sound like somebody like gasping for air, almost like, like somebody with asthma but much deeper to the fact that we had some cases which indicated that they could mimic animal and human sounds as well. Okay. But that one sound I told you about where it was like asthma, Mm -hmm. somebody with a very, very deep, heavy breathing sound, that was reported in quite a number of cases. And on this particular night, as we're investigating, we hear something very heavy, very big, moving in the opposite direction through a big cornfield ahead of us in the dark. And we could hear, in fact, we recorded some of the sounds as we're running with our tape recorders. We're running through the cornfield trying to catch up whatever this thing was, but we could never catch up with it.
1: (laughs) Well, kudos for going after it rather than running the opposite direction, right? (laughs) I'm not sure if I would do that today or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what you do when you're in your 20s and you're crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Now, you detail a myriad of cases in the book, but one stood out to me and obviously stood out to you as well because not only uh, did you guys kind of say it was a turning point for things and made you really wonder what was going on, but the drawing for this case, the sort of the drawing of what went down, actually lends itself as the cover of the book and and it is a just chilling story and just terrifying in a lot of ways and also just mind boggling and perplexing and that 's the Steve Palmer story from october twenty fifth nineteen seventy three if this book was a movie, this would be like the climax. This would be the insane, you know. You feel like it's headed towards something really, truly wild, and and it happens here with this Steve Palmer story. So, yeah. Uh, why don't you detail this amazing case for folks? All
0: right. Well, I'm going to go over some of the the, the primary parts of the case. I mm-hmm. mean, it gets very involved and very yeah. detailed, and I'd really recommend people to read the book. Absolutely. You can't begin to get into all this story. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. Just roughly, uh, I got a call. I think about 10.30 that night from a state trooper from the Uniontown State Police Barracks. He just came back from investigating a multiple witness UFO landing with two Bigfoot creatures in the field at the same time. And I talked to him, and also one of the witnesses was there, and I had a chance to interview him as well. And uh, the trooper indicated that he thought there was a possibility that something might still be up in that pasture. And he thought we should get a team up there. So it was already pretty late. It was quite a distance away, but we did get a team together, got our equipment checked out, and we found our way up there in the early morning hours. And what, <laughs> what we found out, excuse me, was about 9 o'clock that night, about 15 people in that small rural community had observed this large, about a barn-sized red sphere that was uh, slowly dropping towards the pasture. And uh, the farmer's son and two neighbor boys decided to go up to investigate, which was up in his father's uh, property. So he ran into the house and grabbed a .30-06, grabbed some ammunition, which included two tracers. And they uh, made their way down to the farm road and went up to the pasture. And as they got up on top of the hill here, they are pretty uh, surprised. Now, before they got there, in the distance, they're hearing dogs bark in the distance, carrying on tremendously. But they hear like a baby crying sound and a high pitched sound. And as they approach closer, they're getting louder. And when they get up in the pasture, this object is now apparently right on the ground or right right above it. And it, now it's not a complete sphere, it looks like a half a hemisphere. But it's like a big dome, and it's bright white, and the bottom appears to be flat. And the whole area is luminescent, glowing, luminous from this object. And this thing's making the high pitched sound. And every, all three of the witnesses are in amazement. They can't believe what they're seeing and they're studying this things for a short time when all of a sudden their attention is drawn to about 75 feet away to a fence line. And there's this barbed wire fence, and the post's about six feet tall. And they soon realize there's two figures moving slowly in their direction along the fence line. And at first they thought they were bare, but then they soon realize that these things are covered with hair, they're, they're dark matted hair, they're bipedal, they're upright, one's around eight foot tall, the other's maybe seven foot tall, very long arms, hanging up past the knees almost down to the ground, and they're moving one behind the other. They have glowing green eyes. There's a smell in the air like burning rubber, and these things are making these crying, whining sounds back and forth. Well, the one kid yells at the other fellow, shoot him, shoot him, and finally he fires a tracer. Just a bright flash of light. He fires the second tracer. When he fires that second tracer, the largest of the two creatures reaches out as if to grab at that tracer. And the moment it does that, the object in the field suddenly just disappears. It doesn't take off; it's just gone. The sound goes out; the luminosity disappears. It's no longer there. The creatures at that point turn around slowly, and start walking back towards the woods. Uh, the one fella he he shoots some live uh, rounds right into the larger creature, and he said he was sure he hit it, but there was no indication. Neither one was wounded or stopped in any way, slowed down in any way. And the one boy had already run out Run out of the field. The other two made their way out of the field, went back to the farmhouse, told the family what happened. They take him to a neighbor's house they call the state police. And uh, the trooper arrives. They go up in a patrol car. And as the trooper told me, when he got up to the scene where the object had been, that whole area was self-luminescent and glowing. He said it was about 100, 150 feet in diameter. He said it was bright enough that if he had a newspaper, he could have sat down within the circle and read the newspaper from the light coming off of it. The animals wouldn't go anywhere near it. And, um, again, there's a lot more to the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it gets very, very strange and involved. A, A famous psychiatrist who unfortunately passed away last year with Dr. Berthold Schwartz came up and spent several days here investigating the case, interviewing all the people involved, and went away convinced these people were all telling the truth. And, you know, you were talking about some of the strange, the mystery men that showed up. Well, again, there's a lot more to this story, but after this event occurred, you know, we kept going back interviewing the witnesses and the primary witness, and over the years we kept in touch with that primary witness. And um, years later, when we're doing a follow-up, because of some of the unusual events that happened during that uh, story, we did not do any hypnosis, nor did Dr. Schwartz. But years later, as we're following up with the with the witness many years later, and we're considering at that point the possibility, maybe using some hypnosis, and, and the witness says to us, well, why do you want to hypnotize me again? And I'm looking at my associate, and we're saying, well, what are you talking about? And he said, He goes back and recalls, well, you guys, some of you guys from the group hypnotized me. He said, we never hypnotized you. And he goes on to relate that about a week or so, I believe it was, after a week or two after the event happened in seventy three, two men showed up to interview him, and he thought they were part of our group. One man had a suit on, and one man was dressed in an Air Force uniform. And they wanted to talk to him about the incident. They wanted him to recall everything he could about the UFO and the Bigfoot they saw. And the one fella had a briefcase with him. And he had photographs of UFOs and a Bigfoot, and one that I remember him t- plainly telling me about was a picture of a Bigfoot carrying a dead pig over a fence, and I believe it was taken in Georgia, he was told. And they wanted to know how similar it looked to what he had seen. And apparently these two men, whoever they were, did hypnotize him at the time. And they said that they would be following up with him, but, of course, he never heard from them again. And, of course, the Air Force, we, we filed a report on this, but, of course, we got no no information on it because the Air Force officially got out of UFO research, actually, in early 1970. This happened in 73. Yeah. So who these men were, we have no idea.
1: First of all, that's an amazing story, and, and, and thank you for detailing it. And I think A big part of the book covers that story, so folks, definitely, if you want to know more about it, pick up the book. And I had forgotten about that detail that you point out about how the government guys came and showed him the pictures of the Bigfoot, because you always hear these stories about like where are the good pictures of Bigfoot? And makes again, it goes back to to I guess my own pre preoccupation here that that you know maybe the government really knows a lot more about Bigfoot than we than we know.
0: And since the seventies, we've had a few other incidents which suggest that the government has an interest in Bigfoot cases. And uh, and I've talked to others around the country, other research, and they have a few cases as well. So there may well be that there is certain aspects of the government who, for whatever reason, they have an interest in both UFOs and the Bigfoot phenomena.
1: Yeah, very weird. Makes you wonder what, yeah. you know, why? Right. <laughs> like, if it's really just some, some primate running around, then why would the government care?
0: Right. And again, you know, as you proceed further into the story, more even stranger reports show up, which now began, well, after that event out there in, in 73, and there was a much more to it than meets the eye, and we began to realize that there's got to be a lot more to the phenomenon we have under any understanding of relating to UFOs and the Bigfoot phenomenon in general. And then other cases began to come to our attention, which began to suggest that there may well be more to the Bigfoot phenomena than a flesh-and-blood explanation. And that's something that really opened up our eyes. Absolutely,
1: yeah, because... Going back to sort of the idea of, like, why are there no pictures, you always hear the story like, well, why doesn't anybody ever shoot one of these things? Well, folks, there's plenty of stories in the book about people shooting these things and a whole variety of different sort of uh, results related to shooting them. Never anything where you pick up anything tangible, though. Very strange stuff here because uh, people have been shooting them or they did shoot them during this wave, and either they dematerialized or disappeared or seemed to seemed to vanish but still made noises. I mean a whole myriad of weird reactions to being shot can be found uh, in these case files in the book. So yeah, and of, of it's course that of stuff
0: the most interesting was with that when it happened February sixth of nineteen seventy four up near Ohio pile up in the mountains in Fayette County. During that time we were having this big national treasure strike going on. And there was some uh, violence on the highway back then and there was there was gas rationing going on back then. So I couldn't get up to the center early the next morning because we couldn't get gas to get up there, and uh, this involved a woman who had lived in the mountains all her life. She lived in the cabin back in the deep in the mountains, and uh, knew animals very well. Pretty much wasn't afraid of anything. And uh, this particular evening, she had heard some commotion on her porch, and she had some cans out there. I guess tin cans, uh, whatever. And there had been a pack of wild dogs that had been coming through there. So she figured the dogs were back. She decided she was just going to scare them away. So she loaded one chamber of her shotgun just to fire over their heads. And uh, she decided uh, to do that. And she went over to the door, turned on the switch to turn on the porch light, opened up the door, and stepped outside. And there was no dogs there. But just a few feet in front of her is this huge, hairy creature. And this woman never, ever called it a Bigfoot. She's, I remember exactly what she said to me. She said it was a great big hairy ape, but it had its arms raised up over its head. And the first thought was that this thing is going to lunge on her, and uh, she fires right into this thing. She said at that point there was a bright flash of light, like somebody took a picture with a camera, like a strobe going on, and the creature just vanished in front of her. Now, her family, which lived about 100 feet away, they heard the gunshot, and they called her on the phone as to what happened. So her son-in-law grabs his pistol, starts making his way up towards uh her cabin. He said he saw these dark figures running around the distance, but as he got closer, there were four or five hairy people with eyes like coals of fire, and he began to shoot randomly at them and ran into the house. And at the same time, over the trees in the woods, here's this large object, he said like a big crystal, thorn with different colored lights hovering over there at the same time. That's when they called the state police. So during that time, because of the violence on the highways, the state police and the National Guard were patrolling together. So they they both responded to this incident. And of course, I couldn't get up, excuse me, up there until the next morning. But I talked to the uh, primary investigating officer and trooper. And he was just, he said, these people are very credible. They were very scared. But he himself witnessed the animal reaction. He said, it was just amazing. He said, some of the dogs up there, there was, I remember, a number of dogs, including Eskimo Spitz, bird dog. And he tried to physically pull one of those dogs out of his cage. That dog should have been barking, growling probably trying to rip his hand off, and that dog would not move, nor the other dogs, nor other animals on the farm. They were acting very, very unusual at the time. People can be fooled, but animals can't, and that's something that was typically reported on, on many of these incidents. And the next morning, we got up there, and we were investigating, interviewing the people, checking the area over. We're out in the woods. Uh, There was an animal officer up for the county up there. He met us as well, and we were out there checking the area out. And right in line where that lady had shot at this creature, we found the BB pattern in the tree out there.
1: Unbelievable! Just what do you? It just leaves you, like I said, flummoxed at the end of it all, where you wonder really, you know, try to come to some kind of conclusions about what this is all about. It's so hard. It's just so mind-boggling. You know, you wonder what is the relationship between the Bigfoot and the UFO? That's what really. Makes you wonder, you know, even after I finished the book last night, I'm sort of pacing around thinking about this conversation we're going to have today, and that sort of just kept rattling around in my mind, you know. Well,
0: it's rattled mine for years, and again, as I stress, I just present the information we have. Yeah, I don't know what, if any, direct connection exists between the two phenomena except of of what we know and what has turned up. And again, uh, I can tell you from back in the 70s. I was in touch, and I have been in touch with many other investigators around the country and even out of the country, and a lot of them had cases that were similar of UFOs and Bigfoot seen together or other phenomena involved. And many of them told me that they were reluctant to publish the information because they were afraid of being laughed at by their fellow researchers. And that's one of the reasons why I did the book, because I wanted – hopefully to encourage other researchers or other people who have had these experiences to come forward so we have more information to look at this. Because, you know, after this series event happened, and in the many years since I've since investigated many, many Bigfoot cases, you know, I had to be like the Bigfoot and skeptic and say, well, you know, after all these hundreds and hundreds of sightings of similar creatures, not only in the United States but around the country, why don't we have more physical proof? I don't recommend people shooting the them, but there have been shooting incidents. Why didn't anybody bring one down? Why hasn't anybody hit one with a car? Why hasn't somebody found a dead body in the woods? Of all these reports, it just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm I'm beginning to think the possibility that there's something else involved here. And if that case is cr- true from Fayette County, and I saw absolutely no reason to disbelieve what those people told us, then, and that compared, and other cases I know from around the country of similar events, That there, there's got to be something more to the Bigfoot phenomena, and I'm not saying in all Bigfoot case, but there's something going on here that we don't know about, we don't understand.
1: That's sort of the next area that I wanted to get into because you mentioned that you made a a presentation in 1974 to (laughs) Mufon about the wave and everything that had happened. What was the reaction like
0: back then? Well, actually, it was I had it public. I did not give it a presentation. I was in there their symposium proceedings at the time. Okay, okay. And it, it created quite a lot of interest. And I had very, very good feedback, and that's when I began to hear from other researchers who were aware of similar events, but many of them had not published their findings.
1: And, and what I like about it, too, is just to go back to, you know, you're a young guy back then. So, you know, no one had told you that that you have to keep them separated. You know what I mean? It sounds like that. No one had, no one had said, hey, don't do this. It sounds like, you know, you, you just were reporting the information as you, as it came to you.
0: Well, I, I had different, I remember back in those days, I had some researchers were really happy that I brought it out because they had similar cases, and there were others from both fields that said, you know what, uh, there, there can't be anything to this, and, you know, why are you wasting your time? But, you know what, that's not the point. The point is we are out there investigating. This is what we found. You can believe whatever you want. I don't know what it's all about. I'm trying to find out myself, but I'm not going to put it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen.
1: Exactly, yeah, and kudos to you for that and, 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 and for keeping it up and bringing the information back out to the forefront here, you know, in the new millennium. To sort of wrap up, I guess you could say the wave, so, you know, it seems like as we've sort of traced here, you know, you had the big UFO sightings in the early part of 73, the big Bigfoot wave in the uh, summer and fall of, of 73, and then sort of the streams cross, if you will, uh, you know, in the in the autumn of 73. And then in 74, it seems like things just sort of slow down and then kind of, for lack of a better term, get back to normal then uh, in in the years that follow
0: 74? Yeah, got back to normal. And I mean, since that time, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, year after year reports come in of, of all kind of phenomena, whether it be UFOs, Bigfoot, um, you know, my other book that came out last year is called Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. UFOs, Bigfoot, and Other Weird Encounters, Casebook 1, which also both books are available if you want to get autographed copies on my website, which is dot stangordon.info. And uh, they have some very – that other book, Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, has a very, very close-range detailed encounters with UFOs and mysterious creatures. And over the years, year by year, we get other reports of other things from you know, Black Panther sightings here, to uh, Bigfoot sightings, to Thunderbird reports—reports reports of these huge birds with these massive wingspans—that uh, have been reported for years in Pennsylvania and other parts of the country. And some of these have been very close-range, very detailed observations, where not easy to misidentify under the conditions they were reported.
1: It's a testament to you—you know—you got to go out and talk to all these different people, and then you find the the needles in the haystack that are really tremendous needles. So. With the release of the book recently here in the last few months, what's been the reaction from, you know, the UFO and Bigfoot community to silent invasion, especially since, as I said, I really had never heard much about this seventy-three, seventy-four wave. And I'm sure it's been mentioned, you know, a page or two in books in various places and stuff like that. But this is the first really serious examination of the wave that I've seen anywhere. So what's been the reaction of people like me who have just sort of been discovering this news as a result of the book?
0: well it's been very very positive i've had very good i've had many many researchers and people from the public contact me uh, i 's been getting some good reviews out there i've uh, been doing a lot of radio shows and a lot of media has been contacting me about it and uh, it's it's something that's different it 's something a lot of people have not heard about before. It gives them different perspectives to two different phenomena and uh, as i said i don 't have the answers to what happened, but it was an amazing time to live through and there's no doubt some of the strangest case on record were well documented at the time, and uh, it's something that people just need to look at and, and be open minded about. Hopefully,
1: yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, like I've been trying to say, you know, over the course of the interview here, I think it's definitely something that people need to read the book. It's it's something that should be in the library of any serious student of the subject because it it is a testimony, or I guess you could say, it's an investigation of what was going on at this time that is seriously invaluable and really can't be disputed. I mean, you were on the scene there talking to these people, and that's a part of the history of ufology that people need to have in their you know, in their arsenal, I guess you could say, or, or their, their knowledge base, that this actually happened.
0: Right, and, and so many of the Bigfoot reports we hear about, you know, somebody sees something in the dark a quarter mile away, and, you know, they're not clearly defined, but as so many of the reports here were, some of these were, were daylight reports. Some people were then five to ten feet of these creatures, and very detailed accounts and very, very strange accounts in some of these reports.
1: Yeah, these aren't your run-of-the-mill Bigfoot sightings. Some of these aren't, at least. You know, these are, like, really very, (laughs) very uh, strange. Now, at the risk of getting into, like, pure speculation, I mean, as I said, this mystery has been sort of rattling around in my head since since I finished the book. I mean, what do you think is 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 the connection here between these two things? I mean, obviously, you've given it thought over the years. I mean, wh- where do you think the line is between the Bigfoot and the UFOs?
0: Well, I again, and just to be right up front, I don't have the answers. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, as I point out in the book, you know, when you're dealing with – UFOs and Bigfoot, there's similarities but differences. I mean, with UFOs, you have photographs, you have videos, you have physical ground traces, you have, uh, you know, electromagnetic electromagnetic interference. You've got uh, radio communication interference. You, with Bigfoot, you've got some pictures and photos and cast of footprints and other secondary evidence. But in both cases, nobody has ever come up with. Uh, an actual unidentified flying object, even though I, I'm quite convinced that the government probably, in, in a few cases, probably has recovered some of these things. But as I talk about it in the book, you know, when you look at the UFO phenomenon, when I deal with so many cases over the years, when you eliminate all of the IFOs, the things of misidentifications, and then you look at the body of cases that appear to be in the unidentified category, I've been saying for years that there's not one easy explanation for the unknown category. I mean, personally, I think it probably a, a small percentage could well be extraterrestrial spacecraft, but some of these could be something else. I mean, we have good case of what appear to be solid physical objects that, in front of people, they physically disappear or physically change from one form into another. I've, I've mentioned cases where we've had a group of people in, pa- in past years and only certain people in that group could describe seeing this object above them and others in the group couldn't see it at all. And and again I began to look over the years into the backgrounds of, of some of the witnesses who have had UFO and creature experiences and began to wonder, you know, do certain people have certain abilities? A lot of these some of these people had a background of having various type of ESP experiences or paranormal experiences throughout their lives. Yeah. And I began to wonder, like, did some of these people have the capability, they're able to perceive beyond the normal ranges, you know, video, audio ranges, and they're able to perceive certain things that other people can't? Or could the phenomena somehow be attracted to some of these people? And then in some cases, we had people who experience very strange events, just like the fellow up there in Fayette County who was involved in the incident, who never believed in this stuff, had no interest in these things, and after the event, he began to experience various type of ESP experiences. So my feeling is there is much more involved in this phenomenon in general. There's no easy explanation for a lot of it. Probably the reason, my feeling is for years, the reason the government probably is not coming forth with talking about the UFO phenomenon and acknowledging it is that, one, they're not in control of what's going on, and two, they probably don't have all the answers themselves because there's nothing they can do about it, and they may be mystified as we are because they may be finding this as we are, that there may be a lot more to this than an easy explanation, and uh, I I just feel that we're dealing with something that's much more complex in both UFOs and the crypto field with various types of creatures, and Hopefully, someday, as I mentioned, talk about that. Hopefully, someday we may have the technology that might help us to uncover some of these phenomena and know more about them.
1: Absolutely, that's the hope, you know. And that it seems like that'll end up being the case that somehow, for lack of a better term, new science will will end up unlocking the paranormal, on you know, inadvertently for us. So that's that's kind of where I've been feeling uh, for a while. And and having read the book, I I, I almost sort of. Uh, like you said i don't i don't know the answer to what this is all about i don't know why this happened but the sort of like vague conclusion or idea that i came to was that some some kind of window opened mm-hmm. during that period and and these bigfoot creatures came through and the ufo's came through but beyond that i have no idea you know maybe you don't know if the ufo's begat the, the Bigfoot, or if the UFOs were just as flummoxed by the Bigfoot as we are. I exactly. mean, that's something that people need to consider. What, right. <laughs> I mean, what if the UFOs are flying around and they see a Bigfoot and they're like, what is that thing? Yeah. So we just don't know. And, yeah. and yeah. it's amazing to really uh, to ponder
0: right and i as i speculated that could there be certain conditions or certain geographical areas that when the conditions are right these things have the ability to appear and disappear or take on a solid physical form uh, again many questions very little
1: answers absolutely yeah but that's the fun of it all really you know to to ponder this stuff i mean that's having like i said having read the book having fi- after finishing the book that's sort of where i was like it really invigorated and and and, and felt like it was just so fun to think about all this stuff, having read the book. It was just like kudos to you. I highly recommend people check it out. Now, appreciate it. I'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, just sort of your career here, because we're talking about when you were 24, 25 in the early 70s. I mean, you've seen quite a bit of UFO evolution, if you will, in the last uh, 30, 40 years. So, I mean, what's your take now, 2011, on on the UFO phenomenon, where the research field really has gone in the last? Uh, Fifty years since you first got interested in it, I mean you think it's for better or for worse or we're closer or further away, or things have improved or they haven't i mean what's your what's your take I guess you could say on the state of ufology here in the new millennium
0: well there's there's a lot of pros and cons on that, and I mean one thing i am seeing I'm seeing more and more smaller, localized groups getting involved in different types of paranormal investigation. Yeah, the one problem is, and it'll never, I don't think it's ever going to change, is that there really is no central clearinghouse for people to report UFOs, mainly UFOs, or even Bigfoot. I mean, I started in 1969 uh, with my hotline, and for many, many years... Probably the reason why we're getting so many reports in Pennsylvania is because it was one of the few places where you had somebody who was actually gathering investigating cases, and there was a place to report them to. Um, Now there's so many different individuals and groups on the Internet that people just randomly call whoever they can contact. And so it's very hard to get a really good perspective on really the full picture of what's going on year after year. Uh, I keep in touch with a lot of the groups and a lot of the investigators and got a pretty good idea, but there's so many cases we may never hear about that may fall into the hands of somebody that's just not doing anything with them. But, um, you know, things have changed over the years. The one thing that's good, of course, is the media is taking a much more serious approach to these subjects now. You've got a lot of different TV networks dealing with uh the paranormal, the cryptozoology, UFO subject. So it, it's encouraging more people to talk about and come forward about their experiences. So that's that's a good thing that's going on.
1: Yeah, seems like the ridicule factor has lessened quite a bit even since I first got into the field, which is, you know, about eight years ago or so. So it's, it's getting better every year, it seems.
0: Oh, yes, I agree with that. But even today, a high percentage of people who contact me, they don't want their names used out there. And uh, you know, with the UFO phenomena, poor, people are more and more willing to talk about it publicly. But especially with Bigfoot and the strange creatures, people who have these kind of encounters today are still very reluctant to talk about it personally.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can kind of see that perspective too. Because it's strange as it sounds, it seems like seeing a UFO is is reaching a level of kind of being cool in a way. But if you saw a Bigfoot, people could still kind of like laugh at you or or be like, you know, what were you drinking or something like that. So. Yeah. it's 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 disappointing, but now, what do you think of the i well, I mean, I guess you've kind of seen it come in waves over the last uh forty fifty years. The sort of was like you know we're in sort of a disclosure oriented or a disclosure centric state of being right now in the u f o community and I know there was sort of eras where that was really a big thing, then it sort of faded out so i mean what do you what do you think of that whole sort of like fiefdom of UFO research where the focus really is on less sort of collecting cases and doing the investigations and more on sort of the activism end things?
0: Well, I hope I live long enough for the government to finally come out and say, yep, they're really out here. I don't know that's ever going to happen. I mean, over the years, we've heard of different times when there was supposed to be a release of information. If I recall, about 75, 76, there was some strong indication that the government was going to begin to release information, that there was going to be a number of various media outlets that were through films and through books that were going to release information. And some of that kind of partially may have happened, but, of course, nothing did occur. And I've heard it over different times over the years where people who were kind of in a position to know kind of indicated that it was it was going to happen, but nothing ever did. And uh, I'll be one of these people that I'll believe it when I see it happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm only 31, and I've reached that point of view as well. So (laughs) after you've heard it so many years that this is the year and this is going to happen, and it's like, uh, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up anymore. I'm kind of tired of waiting to see. Now, uh, how is the the UFO hotline going for you? Because, you know, I've had Peter Davenport on the show in past few years, and it sounds like, you know, He's been getting some flack, you know, from teenagers with cell phones, hassling him and stuff like that. Are you are you managing to avoid that sort of uh, the perils of having a hotline?
0: Well, I, I think, unfortunately, anybody has a public hotline. We're, we're all dealing with that now because of the free national calling on cell phones. Yeah, But, I mean, the, those cases are nuisance calls, and luckily there's not many coming in here. But most of the calls come from people who are sincere about seeing something, Many of them turn out to be misidentifications, but I deal mainly in Pennsylvania cases, but people do call me from out of state, and you know I try to help them or at least get them to the right path or where they can follow have somebody follow up for them but those things do happen um uh, overt hoaxes over the years, very, very few again, most turn out to be misidentifications but uh it's just one of the things you got to deal with when you're dealing with the public. I get a lot of calls through the web rather a lot of calls uh some through the hotline, many through email through my website, which again, people can contact me uh at stan gordon dot info it's g o r d o n dot i n f o
1: yep, yep, and we're gonna have links all over the place up in all of America for your stuff, so don't even worry about that, Stan. I want people to check out your because appreciate it you know fifty plus years kudos to you, dude. I mean. I've been in this, like I said, for about eight years, and I'm already feeling kind of worn out. How do you keep going after all these years uh, with an interest in the subject that is so elusive?
0: Well, I guess – many people asking that question, and there have been many times over the years where you just feel like it's time to just throw in the towel, but then you get that next call, of that really interesting case, and you hope it's the next call that finally is going to have the evidence to finally solve the mystery once and for all, and you're always hoping for that call.
1: Yeah, we're always chasing that one elusive answer. Well, what about the Bigfoot then? I mean, we've sort of addressed the the potential and the possibility and the unlikelihood, I guess you could say, of, of UFO disclosure, and in light of what we learned about the Bigfoot, do you think this is something that is, you know, going to be something that's, like I alluded to earlier with, with new, regards to new science, something that's going to be sort of like accidentally discovered, the Bigfoot?
0: Well, again, you know, I, I, my feeling is that, again, if and again, there, there are many different reports of somewhat similar creatures being seen throughout the country and around the world. Again, why such a lack of, of evidence, especially here in the United States, when there's so many reports going on year after year? And I'm hoping with the new technology and future technology that we'll be able to finally at least document what these things are. But the question remains, what is it that we're dealing with and why after so many years don't we have more physical evidence? But uh, I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, we might finally have some answers. But as you see from what we found the silent invasion and from what other investigators have told me over the years, uh there may well be much more to this than just a normal flesh-of-blood explanation in some of these reports.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean you could have fifty million bucks to go out and capture a Bigfoot and may just actually be physically impossible to capture the creature. May it literally be physically impossible, given the nature of its existence. So very perplexing uh very perplexing creature. Now talk a little bit about the uh the other book that you put out last year, Really Mysterious Pennsylvania, UFOs, Bigfoot and other weird encounters, Case Book One. Uh, you know, talk about what kind of stuff folks can find in that.
0: Well, there's a lot of extremely detailed, close-range UFO cases. Uh, I mean, there's one case where a fellow was actually standing underneath an object. I mean, it was so close he could have touched it. Wow! Here's here's this object coming across the sky. Uh, I thought at first was a Goodyear blimp, early morning hours. This thing's moving across a field. He jumps out of his car and follows this thing, and this thing is a big metallic object. There's no gondola like a a blimp. Uh, the bottom's hollow, there's blue lights coming all out of it. And the only sound it's making is like as this thing's moving, you can hear the moving through air, like air rushing. And he's looking, there's no emblems, there's no USA on it. He's looking for some type of, uh, insignia, nothing there. And, uh, he sees there's a house down the road, and he runs to the house to see if they have a camera, but of course, They didn't have them, and they didn't want to let them in or whatever. (laughs) He tried to point out the thing to them. What this witness had no idea was that there were numerous reports coming in from various parts of the state from many different people describing something similar that same morning. Weird. And then the book goes on to talk about many very close encounters with strange creatures. I mean, Bigfoot case where the people were in – I mean, one case that just happened – two years ago where in daylight the woman's going down the road in Fayette County catches uh, the glimpse of something on her left eye it appears to be a person who's going to w- walk or run right out in front of her car she swerves to miss that person and looks up to see this is a large hairy creature bipedal long arms and got a really good look at it she, she's off to the side of the road and she looks in the rear view mirror to see this thing actually leap over the trunk of her car and uh, very de- very detailed account other case of like strange creatures, like uh, thunderbird sightings, with the huge birds, and black panther reports, and just a lot of very, very detailed cases, most of which people have never seen before.
1: Now, I, I was under the impression from my previous readings that the the, the Pennsylvania Bigfoot was sort of uh, considered more aggressive. I guess you'd say that it's Pacific Northwest uh, kin. Is that, does that meet out? Does that bear out based on what you've uh, heard and researched?
0: Well, I wouldn't really say so. I mean, aggressive, where they come after people, very rarely. They, and, and generally, that would be in response to my shooting at these things or whatever. Yeah. Because I've had many people, including hunters, told me these things, under the conditions they are, and they could easily have outran them, easily have, you know, got a hold of them if they wanted to, and that wasn't the case. So it's very rarely you hear any cases uh, that you've talked about.
1: Yeah, maybe that actually, maybe that sort of goes back to just the uh, the perception because the encounters are so close as opposed to maybe uh, there's a bigger distance in the Pacific Northwest uh, sightings and stuff like that. Because, you know, based on the sighting reports in this book and other stuff I've heard, you know, and, and just the nature of these sightings there in Pennsylvania, they seem pretty close up, which is something you don't hear too much about in other areas of the country and in the world, really, so – Maybe and again, we've
0: had some reports of these di- kind of dirty, white, hairy creatures. Uh, not that many of them, but we've had a number of them over the years. And I remember years ago, and again, I don't remember any really good evidence for it, but some researchers are pointing out that they felt that somehow the white ones seem to be more aggressive than some of the darker-haired ones, but I don't recall any strong evidence to in- indicate that. Yeah.
1: So... You just put out the uh the really mysterious Pennsylvania Casebook 1. That was last year, you said? Yeah. And and uh Silent Invasion came out just at the end of the year this past year uh 2010. So what what's coming up next for Stan Gordon? What are you working on?
0: Well, right now I'm I'm back into the investigation mode uh, <laughs> doing what I can. I've uh, been a grandfather now for the first time in recent months. So oh, congratulations. I'm spending, spending some time with my grandson and uh doing the best I can uh, but uh you know down the road uh we're hoping to uh get some more of these books out because there's a lot of interest in it. I've had a very good response. A lot of people are encouraging me to get this information out, so hopefully that's what I'll be doing down the road.
1: Yeah, well I can't put it over enough and I hope to see more of these uh case books from you because as I said, you're you know, you're putting your nose to the grindstone, you're doing the work and you're going out and talking to these people and picking up the finer details that you just don't really get in other places. Like you said about the animals and the animal reactions, I mean, first of all, that's something that I previously really wouldn't have thought to look for. And and so, you know, you're seasoned on the case of these things. So, you know, we need more uh, output from you to hear some of these things, these chestnuts that you've dug up over the years. So I look forward to hearing more from you.
0: And we appreciate
1: it very much. Folks, go out and pick up this book. It is riveting and remarkable and has just tons and tons of cases in there that will have you scratching your head and wondering what's really going on here with this UFO Bigfoot connection and just in general, what happened there in Pennsylvania in 1973 and 74. And as we've talked about here on the program, Stan Gordon was on the ground, folks. He wasn't just talking to these people in the last few years and and getting their, you know, 40-year-old stories. He was there 40 years ago, folks. He was in the trenches in 73 and 74 throughout Pennsylvania examining these cases and brings just an amazing level of detail to these sightings reports, not just of UFOs, but also Bigfoot, and in the seriously mind-blowing cases, UFOs and Bigfoot together. So I loved the book, can't put it over enough, and enjoyed our conversation quite a bit. And as I said, Stan, I actually tried to go the whole interview here without asking you about Kexburg, so we managed to do that, which was a, <laughs> which is a bonus. So we can have you on in the future to talk about that and hopefully to talk about more of your on-site investigations into the paranormal. Thank you for coming on the show, Stan.
0: And thank you for having me. I look forward to uh, doing another show in the future.
1: Awesome.